Good morning, y'all. If you would, uh, if you have your Bible with you, turn to the book of Jude. We'll be there momentarily. Uh, we've got a number of people here this morning that weren't here last week, and we've got some folks that were here last week that aren't here this morning. So thank God for technology. We do record these sermons, so you're welcome to go back and listen to them um, whenever you'd like on the website, and uh, we post the, the videos actually uh, on YouTube as well, so you don't have to miss a thing. So again, this is a two-part sermon. I preached part one of the sermon titled Another Gospel last week, and we talked about false teachers and false teaching in the church, specifically the risk it poses to the church, uh, the response of of Christians and leaders in the church and the remedy for the church. And I concluded saying that knowing your Bible is not only what protects you from false teaching, it's also the source of the deep spiritual connection people are naturally inclined to desire. We all want to know our lives matter. And we all want things like love and affection and even material things. And we all want to know that we're under the protection of an authority figure worth trusting. And the triune God of Scripture supplies all of that for us. But by nature, as a result of the fall, people will look for those things almost anywhere else. So last week, I promised we'd we'd dive a little deeper into some specific ideas and philosophies that are attractive to people today that are slipping into the church. Matt Matt got the million-dollar word earlier, talking about syncretism. It's not a matter of, well, the church is just abandoning everything that Orthodox Christianity teaches and, and trading it for something else. There's some, there's some blending, there's some mixing that ought not to be the case. There are ancient spiritual practices and heresies that have borrowed the name of Jesus to disguise what is foreign to Orthodox Christianity in order to make it seem more familiar to us, to make what, what should be rejected by the church, welcomed by the church. And and y'all know the the story of the Trojan horse, right? You've heard of that. The Greeks fought the Trojans for like 10 years and couldn't win. So they build this giant wooden horse as sort of a, a trophy for the Trojans. They leave it outside their gates and sail away, only they didn't sail away. They hid their their soldiers in in the Trojan horse and when when the Greeks saw the, the ships, or I'm sorry, when the Trojans saw the Greek ships retreating, they joyfully opened up their gates and welcomed in their prize. So it looked like a gift for them and a nod to their deity, even, was really designed to wreck them from the inside. And that's how false teaching works in the church. So we're looking at Jude, and at the time of Jude's writing, y'all, around 65, 67 AD, there were precursor, precursors of an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. And we're going to get into that a little bit because that's kind of the flavor of the month again in the 21st century so far. But let me just first start by reading the letter of Jude. We're going to read the whole thing. It's not long. There's only one chapter. There's only 24 verses or so. But give your attention now to God's word. These are the words of the one true and living God. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, 
I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars. For whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To, to, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. It's a short letter. It doesn't seem short when you're reading it aloud. But Jude here, <clears throat> during this time, there were people coming in, uh, and, and they were... They were teaching something new, something exciting, something that seemed like it made sense and seemed to mesh with Christianity, but it was actually false and blasphemous. 
the, these teachers were like itinerant preachers who would come into a town and, and take advantage of people's hospitality while they were there and then try to impress them with fanciful notions and eloquence of speech. And if the teacher could teach them something new, something no one had ever heard before, and do it in such a way that was exciting, that drew a crowd, uh, that, that got the town talking, he could gain for himself a pretty profitable following of his own. Jude calls on Christians, in light of all of this, to persevere and to remember the predictions of the apostles who said that this kind of thing would happen. The main idea of the message this morning, we're kind of dropping into this, this moment that, that Jude's in, that those people are in, because it's so similar to our own. So rather than chop this up and go verse by verse through this letter of Jude's, I want us to, to, to drop into that moment and find the similarities to our own. And so this, this sermon has two, two main points this morning, but the main idea is this. There are really only two religions in the world. People say this kind of thing a lot, right? But hang on, listen to me. Ask yourself if this is true. There are really only two religions in the world. One of human achievement and one of divine accomplishment. The only two religions that exist in the world. Every other relig religion teaches you that man must go up. Christianity is the only one that says God must come down. Every other religion wants to offer you a crown for your human achievement with no cross. Christianity is not a religion of human achievement. It is one and is alone in this. It is the only one of divine accomplishment. I'm going to give you two examples of religious ideas of human achievement this morning. New Age mysticism and Gnosticism. And those will be my two points. And for those of you that like to keep tidy notes and kind of outline things, I'm going to make it simple for you. Those are your two headings. There will be three subheadings under each of those. I'll get to that in just a second. But New Age mysticism and Gnosticism, you're going to find they go in hand in hand in a lot of ways. So there's going to be some, some overlap. But I'm, I'm choosing to hone in on these two specifically because they really are what's most prevalent today. Our temptations towards syncretism are really more in these areas. We're not hanging out over here flirting with, 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 with Islam. You know, we're, we're not kind of having one foot in and one foot out with other established religions. But these ideas, these philosophies, man, these, these are enticing. And they're luring people away. They're luring people who claim to be Christians. And it's important for you to be able to recognize these things because it's, it's in so much of what you consume, so much of what's readily available to you through YouTube, social media, uh, Christian blogs, podcasts, those kinds of things. So here's how I'm going to break this down. We're going to look at both of these ideas or philosophies, New Age mysticism and Gnosticism. These are your three subheadings under each of those. You ready? What they say the problem is, what they say the solution is, and who they say Jesus is. We're going to look at all three of those things under New Age mysticism and Gnosticism. First up is going to be Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis. You're going to hear me say that. It just means knowledge, all right? And what they're referring to is sort of this, this hidden or secret knowledge. People were claiming in, in Jude's day, to have this sort of secret knowledge that you needed to be 
saved. And Jude and John both address it, actually. Some Gnostic groups, early on, and they're mixing with Christianity, saw Jesus as, as sent by the supreme being to bring this gnosis, to bring this spiritual knowledge to the earth, to unlock our human achievement, to free our spirits from the cage of our bodies. The Gnostics wanted to free you from the physical. I mean, Christians affirm that the physical matters. God is deeply interested in the physical, and what we, what we do in our bodies matters. What they say our problem is, is that we're stuck in our bodies. Gnosticism says that humans are divine souls trapped in that ordinary physical material world. They say that the world was made by an imperfect spirit. And the imperfect spirit they're referring to is actually the God of Abraham, the God of the Old Testament. The goal is to be released from the physical. That's one of the first things you pick up on is the, is the disparagement of the physical. Another thing you pick up on is sort of this dualistic idea of God. This idea that God and Satan are, are sort of interdependent. There's a cosmic battle taking place between two equal opponents. Uh, the, the idea that good and evil are both equally and absolutely necessary. They're really just two sides to the same coin. Because how could you know what is good apart from knowing evil? That kind of thing. And so this idea or philosophy suggests that Satan is the god of the physical and God is the god of the spiritual. But what does God say in his word about the physical? When he created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, what did he say? He said it was good. What, did, what was Jesus given when the Father said, Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the earth as your possession. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what did Jesus say before he ascended into heaven? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in Romans 8, Paul tells us that, that, that the earth itself was subjected to futility because of sin, and that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, that the whole creation itself has been groaning for redemption, longing for the day that all the sons and daughters of glory are redeemed because then its chains fall off. So God is very concerned with the physical. And yes, it's, it's, it's corrupted by sin. The world's corrupted by sin. It is. But God doesn't just save you out of it and then let the ship sink. Satan doesn't win anything in the end. God doesn't negotiate with terrorists. He didn't make a deal with the devil saying, well, you can have the earth and, and I'm just going to take some people out of it. In fact, there are a lot of areas in scripture that tell us that the wicked will not inherit the earth and the righteous will not be removed from it. God's very interested in the physical. But Gnosticism says man's problem is our ignorance and being bound and held back by the physical world. Our spirits were, were made for something more. And what God says is that you were made in his image. Made in his image and your final destination is not just some disembodied spirit 
floating around on a cloud in heaven. There's, there's a piece of that, I think, that don't we all just, don't we get tired? Don't we get tired of, of living in a fallen and broken earth? Don't we get tired with the futility that we face in the world? Doesn't that tend to wear us out? Don't we find ourselves sort of longing for home in a sense? Th that's all very true, right? But your, your end is not just to be apart from the world and apart from the, the physical that God has made to be out of your body and, and, and in some la-la land. What I want to remind you all of, okay, what we, what we say is true, what we believe is true, what was bought for us on the cross, and we'll see its fulfillment, is there will be a final resurrection one day where we will have perfect, glorified bodies and inhabit a new and fully redeemed earth where God will come down and walk with us again in the cool of the day. Jesus loses nothing. The whole earth is his and the fullness thereof. The solution Gnostics have to the problem. So the human problem, they say, is that we're spiritual beings ignorant of our godlike potential and we're trapped in the material world. So the solution is attaining the spiritual insight, this hidden knowledge available to us all. Our problem's ignorance, and so what we need is a type of secret information, something never before revealed, something, something never to be revealed. This is the kind of stuff Jude is addressing. This is what these guys that were coming into town were peddling. The idea that there are deep truths and answers within. A deep understanding of ourselves, that's what we need. Who we are, how we got here, where we came from, how we return. Not all wrong. These are not bad questions. Interestingly enough, it's, it's interesting how every human being tends to ask those same questions. What, where we lose each other is how we, how we answer those questions. The disagreement comes in how we answer those questions. And the common thread that ties all of the other religions together, the common thread that ties all of them together apart from Christianity is the inclusion of this goal of human achievement. There's a Gnostic teacher uh, named Monoimus. This is what he said, just to give you an idea. Abandon the search for God and the creation and the other matters of a similar sort. Look for him by taking yourself as a starting point. Learn who it is within you who makes everything his own and says, my God, my mind, my thought, my soul, my body. Learn the sources of sorrow, joy, love, hate. If you carefully investigate these matters, you will find him in yourself. So the solution to our problem is discovering this inner divinity, the little God within us. And then who is Jesus? Last point under this heading. For Gnostics, Jesus and Christ are two very different things. 
Now, to be fair, there are really two brands of Gnostics historically. One that thought Jesus was the embodiment of the supreme being who became incarnate to bring this gnosis, to bring this hidden knowledge to earth. And then there were others who denied the supreme being became incarnate at all because the physical is bad, remember? So it wasn't, he wasn't a supreme being. He was merely a man who, who attained this enlightenment through this secret knowledge and then taught his disciples to do the same. Either way, Jesus wasn't the Christ. He either brought the Christ or he got the Christ but he wasn't the Christ. That's who Gnosticism says Jesus is. Not the second person of the Trinity, not eternal, not the God-man. He wasn't the way. He was the way-shower. This is going to pop up again in a New Age thing, too, this cosmic Christ idea. We'll touch on that in a second. Let's just hop into New Age real quick. Here's a fun fact to know and share. There are more witches in America than Presbyterians. Got everybody's attention back all of a sudden. <laughs> there are more witches in, in America than Presbyterians. And we talked last week, if you missed it, go back and listen to it. We talked a lot about the, the postmodern turn and this resurgence of pagan spirituality in the West. 62% of the entire American population hold at least one New Age belief. One of these New Age beliefs. Here, here they are. That there's spiritual energy in physical things. Belief in astrology. Belief in reincarnation. A belief that psychics have reliable insight to the future. 62%, the majority of the American population believes at least one of those things. 61% of profession, professing Christians believe at least one of those things. This stuff's coming down from the highest levels of Main Street thought and practice. It's all over the place. You know, y'all, I, I don't want you to think I'm just a boy crying wolf here and making a mountain out of a molehill. You know, pointing at these things and saying danger and waving flags. It, it's real. 61% of professing Christians buy into at least one of these beliefs. At least one. You can't tell me it's not a problem. I said last week that your children will probably not encounter many atheists in adulthood. And it's true. There's a desire for re-enchantment in our time. People probably won't identify as belonging to one major religion or, or go to church or anything like that, but they will certainly describe themselves as spiritual. They're believers, just like you. And the big umbrella over most of them is going to be this new age type of thinking, because there's room for everybody. Our problem according to New Age teaching. We're spiritually asleep. We need to be awakened. Our problem is that we don't have a pure enough experience of our divine nature because it's filtered through our bodies and minds. And so people seek out out-of-body experiences to tap into the spiritual realm. 
So you can probably see the, the overlap here already, right? Little hints of Gnosticism there. There's solutions. There's solutions to our problems. Seeking a divine or spiritual experience. Discovering the divinity within you. The New Age gospel goes like this. Humanity is waking up. We're cosmically shedding off our old habits and negative energies and ideas. It promises a new heaven and a new earth and a new humanity. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds Christian. But, but how does that come about? What's their prescription for that? Aligning ourselves with nature. Because God is not only in nature, all of nature is God. We just have to line that divinity in ourselves up with the divinity that, that exists in all of us and everyone else to be a, a part of this sort of spiritual life force. Christians influenced by New Age thinking will describe their solution as achieving Christ consciousness. Have you heard this before? If you haven't, you, you've heard the, the stuff that's underneath it all. This Christ consciousness, tapping into our inner divinity and living it out like Jesus did. Getting our physical eyes lined up with our spiritual eye so that we can see what is unseen, so we can know what is unknowable and unlock the mysteries of the universe. We're all ultimately connected to this life force. And, and in fact, we all make up or comprise this life force. There's a fancy term for this. It's called panentheism. And it's all the rage today. And maybe that sounds crazy. Maybe you feel like you haven't had direct experience with that at all. You, you, haven't, you haven't seen and you haven't been influenced in that way. Y'all seen Star Wars? You seen Avatar? This stuff is really not all that unfamiliar to you. It's not at all unfamiliar to the people in positions of major influence. This idea everything is one, everything is connected. We should all practice a higher state of being where there's no judgment, no fear, equality in all things. Returning to oneness is the goal. Everything is spirit. Lots of New Agers then sound Christian. They, they, they cop Christian language and talk about creation. They talk about Jesus. They talk about the Bible. They talk about spiritual things. I read recently a confession of someone who came to Christ out of the New Age movement. And she said, the reason I thought it was safe is because it talked about God and Jesus. Same team, right? But it's not. You know, some perfect examples of this you're probably familiar with. What's behind some of these things that you might have heard of anyway? Um, the, the Enneagram, if you're familiar with that. The law of attraction. You know, the law of attraction is this idea that our thoughts become things that you can, that you can heal yourself, that you can attract good and positive things in your life by remaining positive all the time. Good luck with that. The Secret, which is sort of the modern handbook on the law of attraction, draws spiritual truths from the Bible and uses it to promote this new age idea of 
positive thinking manifestation. Faith is a source of power. Salvation is an awakening within, an awakening of the divine within you. And God is something we can access through enlightenment. A gift from God is a gift from the universe. Surely you've heard that in every TV show, commercial song you've listened to lately. The universe, right? A gift from God is a gift from the universe because God is everything and everything is God. The Christ isn't Jesus. It's a higher state of being intended for us and obtainable by us through this rise in consciousness. There's, it's blasphemous. There's no other word for that. That is absolute blasphemy. That you can become the Christ. That that's on a shelf somewhere. You just need a ladder tall enough to reach it. That is blasphemy. The Enneagram. I, I know those of you who have used it and love it, think there's nothing wrong with it, and, and think I'm just some fuddy-duddy fundamentalist preacher. That's fine. I, I'm not going to make this sermon about just one hot-button issue, but let me just say this. Facts are facts. Origins matter. Should Christians play with Ouija boards? Why? It's just a game. Why, why not? Well, because we know they came out of an unhealthy 19th century fascination with communicating with the dead. There's something spooky about that. And we know that there is, in fact, a spiritual realm that we are not equipped to handle. We're not equipped to handle those kinds of things. And, and these kinds of tools and practices put out a welcome mat for demonic activity. God says not to flirt with those things. We just read that in Deuteronomy 18. The Enneagram was designed, and I use that term loosely because the guy who designed it said he, it was revealed to him by a spirit. Anyway, it was never designed to be a personality test. It was designed to be a sacred tool that would allow us to see into the spiritual realm and to gain a better perspective of the universe. I mean, you, you, you could... You could gut your car and turn it into a garden. But it doesn't change the fact that it was intended to be driven. You can use it for whatever you want, right? But it was intended for a specific purpose. And so this, this was popularized in Christian circles more recently by Richard Rohr. And you may not know who that is. It doesn't matter. But you know some of his disciples, namely Oprah Winfrey. Big-time disciple of Richard Rohr. Plenty of Christians will argue that the Enneagram is just a tool. There's nothing evil about it. They argue it's helped them to know and understand themselves better and other people. And they talk about what a difference it's made in their life. Doesn't sound a little new agey to you? They argue it helps their relationships by giving them understanding and insight about other people. It promotes unity. I would argue it doesn't. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a four and you're a nine, and fours don't get along with nines. I have no idea what I am. I've never taken it, but 
Everybody's assigned a number. We're able to put neat little labels on people. We're able to be able to tell everything we need to know about a person because of their number. I'm Leo, and you're a Sagittarius. I fail to see the difference. Every technique New Agers use for self-mastery and to ascend to spiritual truth can be traced all the way back to the occult practices of the pagan mystery religions of Egypt and Babylon. There's nothing new under the sun. You know, you hear me use that word occult. I'm not saying a cult, occult, O-C-C-U-L-T. And that word literally means hidden or secret things. Occult practices are trying to uncover these things. Practices like astrology, numerology, witchcraft, uh, crystal gazing. Communication with the dead, magic, palm reading, all that stuff. All these things which are strictly forbidden and warned against by God and cursed by God in Leviticus 20. In Deuteronomy 18 that Matt read earlier, and in Acts 19.19, it's a New Testament example for you. It's not just isolated to, to Israel in the Old Testament. There are warnings against divination and playing around with this kind of thing in the New Testament as well. All of these things are an attempt to find out what's in the dark that God's hiding from you. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? God doesn't want you to eat of that tree. Because he knows in the day that you eat of it, you will become like him yourself. You ever think maybe God doesn't want you poking around in the dark because he's trying to protect you from it? And his warning is clear. If you go looking for it, it will find you. And when it does, it might not terrify you, but it will most certainly fool you. Because Satan masquerades as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. You know, you, you go calling up uh, your old dead grandma. You open yourself up to a spiritual realm like this. Searching for these things that are in the dark. There's a, t- there's a term God uses for this. It, it's translated familiar spirits. Familiar spirits. Why does he say that? You call up your, your dead grandma. She may appear to be your dead grandma. Your heart longing for something that, that, that's gone, that exists in the spiritual realm. And somebody will come bring you a ticket bring you your tour into that spiritual realm and to gain your trust will appear as someone that you you can trust that ain't granny it ain't dear old granny this spiritual realm exists and we're blind to it for good reason all that has been revealed to us through the holy spirit and through the word of god is what we need to know And there's stuff out there that are out of bounds. Places that we don't need to peer into. The danger for Christians here with the new age thought and practice is the Bible becomes secondary to personal experience. What I'm chasing is an experience, not relationship with the one true God, 
through the Lord Jesus Christ who purchased me by his blood. The relationship isn't what I'm in it for. I'm in it for the kicks. I'm in it for the thrills. I'm an adrenaline junkie looking for my next rush. If I have a deep spiritual experience that comes into conflict with the Bible, either the Bible didn't really mean that or there's an exception that must be made in my case. Personal experience becomes elevated over the word of God. That's a dangerous game. It's not a game worth playing. So the New Age teaches our problem is essentially limited belief in ourselves and the solution is recognizing the divinity within us. What do they do with Jesus? Who is Jesus? A man who showed us the way. He, he, was, he was an example. He showed us how to tap into our inner divinity. He was a man that rose to this, this level of consciousness and became the Christ. And you can too. Oprah, again, she's getting a lot of airtime, who was raised in the church and is a professing Christian, says, and I quote, I thought Jesus being here was about his death, but it was about him showing us the Christ consciousness he had and showing us that we can have it too. Christ in the new age is your God essence of yourself. Christ refers to your indwelling divinity, whether you're consciousness, conscious of it or not. And accepting Christ is this shift in self-perception that is salvific in a sense. So New Agers say Christ is not Jesus. Jesus had the Christ, but he wasn't the Christ. John says in 1 John chapter 2, who is the Antichrist but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So listen out for those terms, Christ consciousness, cosmic Christ, you may or may not hear those terms specifically, but be familiar with the ideas, what people mean when they say some of these things so that you'll be able to pick up on it better with some of what you read and hear and encounter. If it sounds kind of new agey, it probably is. And it doesn't belong in the church. Finally, the gospel. Contrasting these views with, with, God, with what God says in his word. The gospel. What's our problem? Sin. Right? Original sin that we're born with. The, the, the kind of sin where we, we do things that God says not to do. And we don't do the things that God has told us we should do. Sin is our problem. And why? Because it separates us from the holy God that made us. It, it trashes and severs our horizontal relationships with other people. And it makes us lose sight of what we were created for, which is worship and the unending enjoyment of God. What's the solution? Atonement. We need a substitute. We need a perfect record. We ain't got one. Someone has to give us that. We need a substitute who will take our guilty sentence. Because a righteous judge can't just pardon evil it has to be punished it has to be dealt with somebody has to take that for us because god is right and just in his anger towards sin and rebellion and his wrath must be satisfied we need a substitute who is jesus your substitute he 
He's the second person of the Holy Trinity, eternal, equal in power and glory with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, both fully human and fully divine at his birth and his death and since and forevermore, the God-man. He didn't have the Christ or get the Christ. He is the one and only Christ. He's sinless and blameless, and he became sin for those that he came to save. So contrasting the gospel with Gnosticism and New Age mysticism, our problem isn't that we're unenlightened. It's that we're depraved and hopeless. Our solution isn't to go up to God. It's that God must come down and intervene on our behalf and do what no man can do. Jesus isn't just the way shower. He is the way the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to God except through him. He is our substitute. I said in the beginning there are really only two religions, one of human achievement, one of divine accomplishment. The human achievement camp, you can always recognize because they downplay sin. They downplay sin. They will always offer you a crown with no cross. And these two that we've looked at specifically are more in vogue than anything else right now. And what they all have in common is lawlessness. That's why people are becoming more spiritual today. No strings attached. I get to live how I want. There's, there's no strings attached. There's no object of worship. I don't have to bow down to anyone but myself. body doesn't really matter. It's just going to get buried or burned anyway. Who I really am is within. Anything is permissible because evil and sin are not real. They're just illusions and concepts that keep us from being free and experiencing and participating in the unity of God. The only evils today, y'all listen if I'm losing you, okay? You tell me if I'm wrong. The only evils today are limited beliefs in yourself and beliefs that limit others. That's the world's definition of evil. The only evils today are limited belief in yourself and beliefs that limit other people. Those are the cardinal sins. The idea that we're sinful creatures is distasteful. It robs us of knowing and achieving our full potential. It is a lie that keeps us from knowing we are great and we are equal with God. We have a right to it. Orthodox Christianity is stiff and boring and full of guilt and negativity, and it needs to progress so that we can advance. There's no need for salvation. We just have to wake up to the fact that we are gods ourselves. It's as old as the lie in the garden. There truly is nothing new under the sun. So as I'm wrapping up the, the end of this two-part sermon about false teaching in the church, I want you to be sure, I want you to know why I thought it was important to address this. I wasn't just trying to fill the time. I wish I had more time. I wish I had a lot more time to get into this more in depth. It's been hard to try to squeeze all this in. I'm worried y'all will be unable 
to identify error when you see it. What I'm more worried about is that you will be afraid or timid about confronting it because you don't want to come off as being unloving or ungracious. I'm afraid there's just enough of this influence in you already where you would not want to step on toes with the people God is driving out of the land. Is it possible there's just enough of this that's gotten in somehow that makes you want to play nice with people you know are God's sworn enemies? We pray for those people. We pray for their salvation. But we're not on the same team. And there's something thoroughly biblical and that demonstrates a zeal for God, a zeal for, for your Savior who purchased you with his blood, for you to be able to stand and to lovingly, lovingly, with love, but in truth and honesty and with conviction, to be able to say, that is not Christianity. It's not just we, we disagree, right? I, if you don't have the ability to discern the difference between minor theological disagreements and critical theological errors, it's going to be too easy for you to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, like Paul says in Ephesians 4. That's why it's worth the time to talk about this stuff. That's why we point out and holler, danger, danger, Will Robinson, right? I'm going to close with the closing from Jude's letter, because I don't have better words than these. Jude writes to Christians, warning them of strange teaching. And here I am, preaching from that same letter, warning you of the same thing. So it just seems fitting. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that in a, in a world, in a part of a world that is so comfortable with lives of such relative ease, you know, all, all of us got up this morning, we had, we had hot showers. We turned the lights on so we could see. You know, we, the temperature in our homes felt very different than the temperature outside. We drove in cars to get here this morning. God, all of these comforts, we thank you, we praise you for. God, I pray that we would not be so comfortable that we would not be on our guard. Because there is an enemy who seeks to work us woe. God, I pray for your protection over your people. That's all I ask. I pray that they would seek your protection. 
Lord, help us. We have, we have hearts that, that long and lust after things of this world. We're easily distracted. We see bright and shiny things. We hear something that's new or novel, and we're just attracted to it. We gravitate towards those things. But God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would alert us to those things instantly. And that we would come back into the fold under your wing, under your protection. That we would call our brothers and sisters under that same wing of protection. And out and away from the darkness that we all just are fascinated with. Lord, I pray that that would be true of us at King's Church. And for Christians all over North America. Because this is where this is, this is increasingly more popular. Protect us, Lord. Make us wise and discerning. Give us a hunger for your word. Help us to long to be with you in prayer. Find your protection there. I ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.